The following sermon was preached during a Sunday morning reunion at Harvest City. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. My name is Mike, and I am uh, an elder at Harvest City, and I'm super excited and blessed this morning to be sharing with you this specific Bible story, because it is my favorite Bible story in the entire Bible, Uh, and what I think is cool about it is that you may not have even read it before, unless you've ever uh, read through the entire Bible. I don't think it's one that's typically taught in Sunday school classes. Um, I think it should be if it isn't, but uh, it is totally underrated, and I hope you are blessed um, from hearing this story this morning and next week, actually, um, as, as much as I am. I want to start uh, by asking a question. Has anyone in the room ever been through a reorganization at work? Could you raise your hand if you have? Okay, cool. So I want to tell you a little bit about my experience with reorganizations at work. Uh, it's not the best, but so um, I had just transitioned from a job and in, in, as a TV reporter into more of a, a corporate setting at ACT here in town. And uh, I was really excited to be there. And then early on in that experience, we got this new, new president of marketing um, from, from somewhere big. And we were excited about this. And we sat down with him, I think, for one of the first times. And he's standing in front of us and the entire marketing team. And he's kind of setting his vision for us. And he's communicating to us for the first time. And like, I'm excited to get behind this guy. And he says, I want to be uh, transparent about what the future is probably going to hold here at ACT over the next few months and potentially years. We're going to be going through a a reorg. And I was like, again, I'm I'm a really naive kind of young guy in his 20s, hadn't worked in this type of setting before. And I'm like, hmm, a reorg. Okay. I don't know what that means, um, but uh, it doesn't sound too bad, I guess. Uh, I'm going to raise my hand. I'm going to ask for, for more clarification about what he is talking about. And so I'm like, can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by we're going to have a reorg? And uh, it's a really embarrassing for me to uh, think about that I asked that question in front of all my peers now. Um, but he looked at me very confused, and he, he literally couldn't think of a, a better way to say it other than we're going to reorganize the company. And I said, uh, okay. My, li- my wife likes reorganizing, or organizing. Um, that sounds cool. Um, you know, you, you have things that are out of order, and you, and you put them in appropriate places. Like, that can't be too bad, right? Um, <clears throat> and so I kind of, like, went away from that. Again, really not understanding uh, what he was talking about or what the future was going to hold. Well, uh, what the next few months and even years entailed uh, at our company, a reorg meant that a lot of people were going to lose their jobs, and they were going to get moved around. And if you got, if you were lucky enough not to lose your job, you're going to get put in different parts in the company. And it was awful. And particularly, it was awful for me because I was a worrier, and I was terrified that I could lose my job. I had just uh, come out of college in 2006, and um, only a couple years after that was the Great Recession, so I'd witnessed people go years without finding new jobs, and so this was horrifying to me. And then uh, my uh, 
beautiful wife had our first child, and she exited the workforce to care for that child. And so my income was the sole income in our family, and that was like crippling to me because I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders to provide, and there's this constant threat that I might lose my job because every six months there was massive waves of people being let go at my company. And so I, uh, in one of these <clears throat> moments of great fear and sin, frankly, I called my parents and I said, uh, gosh, it, like, you know, and I expressed to them, like, it's happening again, like, this, all these people are let go again, I can't believe it, and um, usually my parents will take a, like, a really soft and gentle, encouraging tone, and I, I think that's what I was seeking in that moment, but in this particular conversation, they had much more wisdom uh, for me than that. And they said what I needed to hear, and they were much more stern. They said, uh, Michael, it's time for you to flex your faith muscles. Today we're going to talk about our faith muscles and the God of the universe who intimately and passionately loves you enough to allow you to walk through hard moments in life. Today's sermon title is Faith is Forged in Fire. Will you pray with me? Jesus, uh, we praise you that you love us enough um, to allow us to even go through hard circumstances, uh, that you love us enough to put us in situations where we need to throw our weight upon your shoulders, Lord. And so we pray, God, that you would be glorified this morning in all the words that I speak, uh, that you would allow us to hear the words that um, you want us to hear, that each individual in this room would take away exactly what you want to say to them. Be glorified in me, Jesus. You are all I need. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to be reading in Second Chronicles chapter 20, and this is going to be a two-part series. We're going to uh, cover half the chapter this week and the next half next week. And before we read the text, I'm going to set the stage for you. So today's story is about King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. So at this time, Judah is one of the 12 remaining tribes of Israel, and Judah was the first tribe to take its place in the land of Israel, occupying the southern part of the territory. It was an oppressed outpost of the Persian Empire, and King Jehoshaphat was their fourth king. And the good news is, is that he loved the Lord and the Bible tells us that the Lord was with him because he followed him in all his ways. His heart was devoted to God. The Bible tells us that the Lord established uh, the, his, the kingdom under Jehoshaphat's rule and control, and that his people treated him with great wealth and honor. And at their time, there were uh, idols and small g gods popping up, and Jehoshaphat would try to make sure that they were all removed so that people's eyes were fixed on the one true and only God and he made sure that the people of that land also knew the law of God. And despite this commitment to God today, we're going to talk about a significant crisis that the Lord allowed to happen in the life of Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. Specifically, there was a group of people called the Moabites who had rebelled and gained independence from Israel. And these Moabites decided that they wanted to form a coalition with two other nations to join together and attack Judah and King Jehoshaphat. Will you open your Bibles with me now? Uh, we're going to read again from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. 
After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mianonites, came with Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast all throughout Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Here is a map of the, the region at that time. It shows the three nations on the east side of the, Red, or the Dead Sea. They have banded together, and they're going to attack Judah. And uh, Judah is completely outnumbered. Their hope for survival is minuscule, if none. And I think it's important to point out that King Jehoshaphat's initial reaction was one of fear. I think that's a very natural response to have. God has created within each one of us a very natural response when we are facing something that is threatening our well-being. This instinctual reaction prompts an important desire for life protection. But where we go with that desire for protection changes everything. I'll say that again. Where we go with our desire for protection changes everything. Where does Jehoshaphat and the people go? They go to the Lord. Verses 3 and 4 again say, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek, him from the, to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. This is incredibly profound. Listen to what Bible scholar David Guzik points out. There was certainly a sense in which Jehoshaphat feared the great multitude coming against him. Yet the sense here is that he feared the Lord and was more awed at the power and the majesty of God than at the destructive force of his enemies. Think about that. He believed that prayer alone was the surest piece of his whole armor. If Jehoshaphat feared the great multitude more, what would have his reaction been? I imagine that he would have immediately called his military leaders into a room and started game planning how they were going to try to win this battle and protect themselves. They would have tried to think of every possible scenario and reflect which option was going to be best for their protection. I think that's what many of us do when we are put in fearful or hard situations. We game plan. We figure out option A, B, C, and D, and we start making decisions, sometimes big ones, out of this desire to be in control, out of this desire to protect ourselves from being uncomfortable or any discomfort. But King Jehoshaphat, he says, forget that. Give me the God of the heavens and the earth. He says in verse 5 through 9, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem and the house of the Lord before the court and said, O oh Lord God our fathers, are you not the God in heaven? You rule over the, all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it? forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And they have lived in it 
and have built for you a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. By the time the word of this invasion got to Jehoshaphat, the armies coming against them were just 50 miles away. His hope was firmly planted in God and nowhere else. Not his wisdom, not his army strength. This was his response in crisis because Jehoshaphat had a strong foundation built on faith. Lesson number one this morning is that faith muscles are built before tragedy strikes. I want to talk a little bit about how we might build faith muscles, and I'm going to share three specific ways. The first that comes to mind for me is to constantly remind yourself who God is and what he has done. Let's reflect on this uh, prayer of Jehoshaphat in this time of pending tragedy. The king's words are directed to God, but it's not like he's talking to himself and his people. He is reminding himself who God is. He says, are you not the God who has done all these amazing things for your people? A Bible reference I said, I read, said it really well this way. When Jehoshaphat encountered the crisis of an enemy threat, he did not fear the future, but rather looked to the past. When Jehoshaphat encountered the crisis of an enemy threat, he did not fear the future, but rather looked to the past. Church, if you've been a follower of Christ for any period of time, you have been witness to his works. There are evidence of his grace and his works all around us and all around you, and not the least of which is the fact that he saved us from a certain eternal death. Some of the things that he's done for us are big and they're obvious, and some of them are small and harder to recognize. But if we want to grow our faith muscles, we need to reflect on them regularly. We need to write them down, maybe even. Psalm 77, 12 says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. As you meditate on them, thank him. Psalm 107, 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Another way to build our faith muscles is to tell people about what God has done. When we talk with coworkers or friends as the days go by, we need to be honest. We need to speak of his goodness all throughout our days and all throughout our conversations. If he's done something, we need to tell people. Psalm 89.1 says, I will sing of the goodness and loving kindness of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness from generation to generation. Lastly, another way to grow our faith muscles is to recognize our daily dependence on God. As King Jehoshaphat stands before the people, pouring out his heart to God, this is not the first time he has talked to the Lord. He talks to the Lord every day. The Bible tells us that his heart was devoted to him. One of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves is that we do not need to depend on God in the day-to-day. Yeah, of course we can survive. We can get from point A to point B, but absolutely God desires so much more. Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4 says, The steps of a man are established, established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I believe God wants to be intimately involved 
in every single moment of our life. When he becomes intertwined into every part of our day such that we don't want to take a single step without him, stepping into dark moments and the uh, life of life can become a whole lot less scary. King Jehoshaphat knows God well, which is why he's able to pray with confidence in verses 10 through 12. I'm going to read that now. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let, your, not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us to, as inheritance. Our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. This is my favorite line of this story. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. There's something really Special about hard circumstances, don't get me wrong, they hurt, they stink, they're emotionally draining, but by God's grace, they force us to throw our full weight of dependence back onto the only shoulders strong enough to carry us. What if, instead of trying to avoid these moments and protect ourselves from them, we lean into them as God brings us to them? Lesson number two is that something changes when we fix our eyes on God. Let's be very clear about the circumstances in the story. The circumstances in, in Judah and around King Jehoshaphat, nothing has changed. But when they look to God, something in them comes alive. Consider the night Jesus walked on water. His disciples are afraid. They think it might be a ghost when they see him walking on the water toward them. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus says. So the Bible says that Peter, his eyes fixed on Jesus, starts walking on water toward Jesus. But then it says that Peter saw the waves and the wind. He took his eyes off Jesus, and he became afraid, and he began to sink. Jesus immediately reaches out his hand, and he takes hold of him, and he pulls him up, and he says to them, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt Think about little David in the Old Testament story of David and Goliath. This giant is mocking the entire Israelite army, calling out to them, telling them to send someone to fight him. And everyone on the side of Israel is completely terrified, except for David. His confidence was not fixed on his own experience in battle or the strength of his weapons. His eyes were fixed on God, and that gave him courage. And he says to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. So what I'm not saying this morning in, in sharing these two stories is that God might be calling you to proverbially walk on water in different areas of your life or face your Goliath. I am simply saying that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the protector of our faith. For some of this, us, that simply means laying down our burdens at his feet. To stop running, stop trying to protect ourselves, stop trying to do life on our own apart from him in our own strength. Jesus says, come to me all who, are, who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Famous 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon remarked, Lord, if help does come, it must come from you. We are looking to you for it. It cannot come from anywhere else. So we look to you. So as you might know, Sherry and I have two kids, they're six and eight, and uh, they still get scared at night sometimes, and they'll come out repeatedly when we're trying to relax and um, let us know that they're scared. And one way that we try to encourage them as they try to fall asleep and not be afraid is to reflect on God's character by naming different parts of who he is by going through the alphabet A to Z. So I want to do that quickly here as we reflect on this God of who we are fixing our eyes on. God is almighty, boundless, compassionate, dependable, eternal, faithful, good, holy, immortal, just, kind, loving, merciful, never failing, one, perfect, qualified, righteous, sovereign, true, unchanging, victorious, wise, extraordinary, Yahweh, and zealous. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the bread of life, the comforter, the good shepherd, our friend, Emmanuel, Messiah, Prince of Peace, the light of the world. He is your healer. He is your friend. He is your protector. He is your strength. He is the most Hi, he is the I am. Fix your eyes on him. Let's continue in our story in verses 13 through 17. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jerusalem. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. There's so much to unpack here. These people humble themselves before God in a moment of great distress, and they are standing there with their eyes fixed on him, and he gives them this word, And he says, you will not need to fight this battle. Don't be afraid and do not be dismayed. Their faith is being forged in fire. Which leads us to our final lesson. Many times we simply are being called to trust God. And that is certainly the case here. The people of Judah are being asked to trust. And I would say in most instances in our life, the same can be said to us. God is saying, do not be afraid, for I am with you. The battle is not yours, but God's. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? It's noteworthy to point out that the Lord did not prevent this threat from occurring. He did not tell them 
to pack their bags and go home, he still asked them to go out to the battle. They were being asked to walk out their faith. And to tie this back to our discussion today, I thought about uh, this uh, image of strengthening our faith muscles, and I picture someone doing bicep curls. And as one lifts a weight toward their shoulder doing an arm curl, the muscle shortens, and then it, uh, the, the triceps lengthen. And as you work out, your muscles, they tear and become damaged. And it is through this process that your body begins to repair itself. And as your body is restored, your muscles actually grow. Well, in the same way, God loves the people of Judah enough to stretch them and tear their muscles so that he can restore them and so that they can grow. He is making them walk out their faith. And each step out into that horrifying, scary battle for them is likely like a bicep-tearing curl, another strengthened faith muscle. I believe the same can be said of us. No doubt he will or already has or maybe currently is making us walk through utterly and dark, difficult circumstances. I feel like the Lord is telling us this morning not to take these moments for granted. Uh, He is always teaching us something during these times. And we need to search for what he is teaching us. I shared that story earlier uh, at the beginning about my experience at ACT. And I think back at my time uh, there And God for sure was teaching me lessons. The truth is, he was revealing a serious idol in my heart of security, among other things. And I was praising my job because it kept me feeling secure, which was not true or right. The truth was that my security and my strength and everything that I am can be found in Christ alone. As I think, uh, as a parent, I love like weaving in illustrations and stories from my past, and um, this one was like just too good not to share and too uh, appropriate for what we're talking about this morning. Um, so as a parent, I could uh, think of no harder valley to enter then than that of a parent with a sick or dying child. Um, and uh, as I reflected on that specific uh, struggle that some people are, are asked to walk through, I thought about my friends in South Carolina who were asked by the Lord to walk out that path And so uh, this story I'm going to share about with you today, uh, you're going to at least hear a part of it. I'm going to share in greater detail next week. But it's about a boy named Judah. His name is actually Judah. Uh, When he was a toddler, his parents, Vanessa and Hart, learned that he had cancer. And I'll never forget the way that they faithfully walked out the path that God had set before them. So here is a picture uh, that she had shared on uh, Facebook with the words, Judah is in critical condition in the PICU. And we're begging for the Lord to protect our little boy's life. The infection in his stomach is causing fluid retention. And we have had surgeon in here saying that we need to start talking that about if, if the, the colon ruptures because uh, Judah is in terrible condition to go into surgery due to his low uh, blood counts that he could die. And God is the only one knows what will happen. We are overwhelmed and pray we can just stay focused on Jesus and pray God brings healing quickly. I love her authentic posture. Whatever valley you might go through, it's okay. I want to communicate that it's, it's okay to be overwhelmed. It's okay to be hurting. It's okay not to have it all figured out. It's not like God is expecting you to stand strong and firm in every single moment. 
And by God's grace, Judah's cancer went into remission before coming back a year or so later. And this family was asked to live in hospitals and forced to constantly throw their full weight back onto the only one that could hold them. I won't get into the details uh, of this amazing story uh, now. I'm going to save it for next week. And it's one of the most amazing stories that I've ever seen or heard. So I encourage you to come back next week to hear that. And it's one that only God can receive the glory for. It's really a miracle. Um, I will share now, though, that he is a healthy young boy, age nine. And as his mom reflects on that time of their life, she comes to this conclusion. She says, faith is forged in fire. I think our minds would be tempted to go to the deepest and darkest fears of our hearts as we talk about these things. And we might be saying, God, please don't ever take me there. If that's what it means to follow you in my deepest, darkest future vision of what life could be, I don't want to go. Some of you might be walking somewhere hard even right now. Uh, Maybe you have wounds from a past season even, and you're thinking, I'm not sure that I can trust you, God. I know for sure as a church that we have had people go through really hard things or are currently going through hard things, such as uh, watching loved ones die painful deaths. Uh, people have struggled with mental health. We have lost children during pregnancy. We have had marriages that struggle uh, significantly in different seasons. And I pulled scripture uh, for each one of these because I believe that God wants all of us and you specifically to hear that God is saying this to you. I am near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. I have seen every one of your tears. I have not ever left or forsaken you. I never will. I will heal your wounds. One day I will wipe away every single tear from your eyes. And death will be no more. And neither will there be mourning or crying, or pain. Trust me with all your heart, even when it doesn't make sense. I will make your path straight. Sometimes life's difficulties simply are because we live in a broken and sinful world. And I heard this quote that really resonated with me. It said, if you are a Christian, your life on this earth will be the closest to hell you'll ever be. But James 1 reminds us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Follower of Christ or not a follower of Christ, none of us are promised a carefree life that's uh, free of pain or hard moments. And as believers, we have a God that promises to walk alongside us. He promises that he is making all things right. He is restoring what is broken. He is working all things for the good. And ultimately, he is calling us to trust in him and change our heart posture from my will be done to thy will be done. Remember the good things he has done in your life. Recite them. Share it with those around you and fix your eyes on Jesus in each moment. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that we are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are transient, but, excuse me, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
I love this line from a reference Bible I'm going to conclude with. If Jehoshaphat had reason to trust in the Lord, we have even more. Like Jehoshaphat, we can look to the past and ground our trust in God to protect and provide for his people, the church. Consider him who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The battle has been won by Jesus and we do not need to fight. Will you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, uh, we love you so much. We thank you uh, that you love us enough, um, again, to, to make us go through hard circumstances sometimes, um, and that no matter where we are in life, we can look to you and find strength in you and love in you and assurance in you. You are so good, and you are so holy, and you are so worthy of all that we are. Help us to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, um, in, our, in our coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.